Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that never thinks it is mistaken and doesn't find it hard to say what it needs to say, even if that's a 40-year-old pop reference. I'm Alexandre. Let's meet today's panel. First up is the independent sketch writer Tom Peck. Hello, Tom. Hiya. How you doing? I'm all right. In a move akin to hiring Boris Johnson as a marriage counsellor, the chair for this year's COP28 summit, which is in Dubai, is Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber, the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. As a planet, do we have a death wish or are we just thick? Well, we're definitely thick. There's no doubt about that. I mean, we'll believe anything as long as we're told it often enough. I mean, similar to this, right? I, I used to be an Olympics correspondent. And for the, for the whole time that I did it, I never really stopped being amazed about how that whole event pretty much only exists these days in order to sell Coke and McDonald's, right? And if you think about the Olympics, Coke and McDonald's are one of the first things that comes to mind. And you know, this faster, higher, stronger, yada, yada, yada. All it really exists for is to, in order to get the fittest people on the planet to sell Coke and McDonald's. <laughs> but if you keep saying it over and over and over again, you get away with it. And that's kind of what, certainly what Abu Dhabi, Qatar are attempting. At the same time, I am, am I allowed in any way, in any way, to try and give Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber the benefit of the doubt? Of course. I mean, we, we've not got much hope at saving ourselves unless the big boys pivot away from producing fossil fuel energy and doing it in a greener way. And actually, one of the advantages of being an appalling autocratic state is that you really can just do what you want. And a lot of them are trying to pivot away onto renewable energy. I mean, the reason Qatar has bought absolutely everything, including London's Olympic Village, is because they do want to have a diversified economy by the time at which their only revenue stream dries up, i.e. fossil fuel wealth. And they're doing quite well at it. And it seems to me that Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber is from that wing of the oil extraction business. So maybe he's not a terrible person to chair that summit. Hmm. Better to have him in the tent, I guess. Also joining us is Algebra Wiz and author of Escape, <laughs> How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet, Marie Leconte. Hello, Marie. Hello. In further Really That Guy news, Damien Green has taken over as the chair of the DCMS committee responsible for overseeing the online harms bill. This is the same chap sacked by Theresa May after he was caught with porn on his work computer. Are we openly gaslighted now? I, I don't know if that says more about me, the political situation, political recent history, or a bit of both. But I saw that and I couldn't even, I didn't have the strength to muster any form of emotion. I was like, sure, yeah, you know, why not? Why not have the porn guy in charge of scrutinizing porn? Why not? You know, I, 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 I didn't really know what to say. And, and also, again, what does that say about our, you know, kind of political scene that... I was a bit like, actually, he's not really one of the very bad ones when you think about it. He isn't, you know, so he isn't. Much, it's weird, so right? so much worse. Yeah. So, yeah, so here we are. I think it's just, I didn't really have a lot to say about it apart from the whole thing feels symptomatic of perhaps some bigger problems. Yes, some, some, some lack of options, let's say. Our guest this week is Britain editor of The New Statesman and host of the very logically titled New Statesman podcast, <laughs> Anoush Shakilian. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great pronunciation of my surname, by the way. Thank you. So Armenian. Thank you. Smashing it. The Metropolitan Police armed officer today admitted 49 offences, including 24 counts of rape. I shan't name him. Over two decades, he used his position to terrorise and silence his victims. Should we be depressed that it took this long to stop this man? Or is it actually a sign of progress that this sort of historic case is now being actively pursued? I do think we should be depressed. Reading the details of this case it is really horrific. And, you know, just one small detail of all of these terrible things that we now know that this person has done. One small thing stood out to me, his nickname among 
Metropolitan Police officers that he was working with was Bastard Dave. And they've insisted this wasn't because of sexual offences. This was because he was known to be mean and cruel, which somehow mm. is, you know, uh, not really particularly reassuring. And we have to remember that who else had a nickname? The serving police officer who killed uh, Sarah Everard. Yeah, right, right. Um, his nickname was The Rapist among some of his colleagues. So... It seems that this canteen culture that, you know, was being talked about back in the days of Stephen Lawrence's murder is, you know, persisting. Um, and, you know, if, you, if you'll excuse me a plug, we did an investigation into police officers across the country, not just in the Met, back in 2021. And we found that a quarter of officers sacked for serious offences in English and Welsh police forces had been hidden from the public. So lots of people don't actually know about this stuff. So I'll take what you say about the fact that this is in the... In, come out into the open is perhaps something that we can take a sort of shred of positivity from. But all of these cases, people who have been, you know, convicted of domestic abuse, possession of indecent images of children, sexual relationships with vulnerable people and racism, they'd gone under the radar. They're supposed quietly to quietly shuffled to away, them. basically. Yes, exactly. On today's show, Rishi Sunak is putting himself front and centre as fixer of the nation's ills. But where are all his ministers? We unveil the mystery of the invisible cabinet. Plus, support for remaining in the EU is going up all over Europe. Has Brexit Britain given the rest of the continent a tutorial on what not to do? An incel poster boy, Andrew Tate's incarceration, has shed light on the online culture of toxic masculinity. Can we devise a detox? But before we get started, two delightful announcements. Announcement one, we are delighted to tell you that our first live show of 2023 is happening on Wednesday, 15th of February. We are back at the Leicester Square Theatre London for another evening of political argument, humour, analysis, Brexit bashing, surprises, recriminations, surprising recriminations, and of course, terrible puns. I'll be joined by Ross Taylor, Ian Dunt and Aisha Hazarika. And for the first time in a long while, we have a rough idea of who the Prime Minister will be, although I'm not making any promises. Tickets are out now. Patreon people get a discount so you could support us and get the money back straight away. Go to leicestersquaretheatre.com to book. Announcement two. As you will know from your feed, we've just launched a brilliant new podcast. It's called Jam Tomorrow, and it features our own Ros Taylor exploring the promises that were made and betrayed after the Second World War and how we can get them back on the agenda. It's a brilliant listen, and episode one, Every Day is Like D-Day, is out now, featuring splendid guests from historians Lucy Noakes and Fred Taylor to Pat Mills, the creator of Battle Picture Weekly Comic, and comedian Al Murray, Find it on your favourite app or through the link in the show notes. Just search for Jam Tomorrow. First this week, the slick PR machine that was evident during Rishi Sunak's time at number 11 hasn't yet shown up for work at number 10. In a political broadcast that seemed to think changing camera angle every two words could somehow compensate for the most awkward delivery since David Brent's Don't Make Me Redundant speech, he told us he was brought in to fix the nation's challenges, which is a funny way of saying he got in without ever winning a vote. But where are his ministers? Perhaps in an effort to outdo his predecessor Liz Truss, who managed to make 60 billion quid vanish in one afternoon, Sunak appears to have made his entire cabinet disappear. Marie, perhaps the most notable absence is Sunak's busiest Secretary of State, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt. Where is Waldo? <laughs> I have no idea, but I think... So. I think when did you last see him? I don't know. Is he still alive? Uh, but no, so what I find actually quite interesting about Jeremy Hunt is that he's sort of become like the villain in a kid's cartoon because you never see him, but you only hear whispers of him because we know that, you know, especially looking at all the different departments and all the different strikes and, you know, kind of sectors threatening strikes, what everyone is saying is, oh, well, you know... I, as I think I, I said exactly last week, you know, they're now at the stage of saying, oh, obviously, we would love to give you more money. But the big boys at the Treasury said that they would beat us up if we did that. So we can't do it. So, so, so you know, you kind of have that simultaneously again. There's, you know, those whispers of Jeremy Hunt keeping, you know, his like sort of like grubby little hands on the public's purse and not letting any money go to waste. But at the same time, again, he's absolutely nowhere, which is such a weird combination of things mm. to be. And which also I think that the, the slightly boring wonky point as well is that politics is obviously about narratives 
And it's not, you know, and it's, it's not just about taking a decision and that's that you kind of have to explain what you're doing. And especially, I think, even though austerity is not as popular as it used to be, you can probably still create a narrative that says, actually, you know, we, we've had the shock of COVID, the war in Ukraine, et cetera. So we are really trying to be incredibly responsible with the nation's finances. Mm. And that's why we're doing or not doing X, Y, Z. But he's not saying it. Yeah, but someone that. has to say that. Yeah, right? e exactly. Be people are not going to guess that. So, no, I, I find it entirely baffling. Davos this week surely he has to show his face. Just as concessions look close for health workers and rail staff, the Teachers Union has announced it's going on strike. University and College Union, 18 days of strike action. Junior doctors are flirting with the idea too. Does the disappearance of Hunt indicate unity on this, do you think? Or does it indicate division? I don't. Again, so I think, and I, I've written a column about this before, so what I find really odd about this government is that nothing really leaks, which I know is, you know, is actually arguably a good thing from their point of view, right? But, you know, we no longer have the thing of the cabinet ministers going to cabinet and within minutes of the cabinet meeting ending, you know, all the papers tweet, you know, all the journalists kind of tweeting, mm. say what happens. So we don't really have that anymore. The, the you know, the, the, all the Whitehall departments are not especially leaky either. So we don't really have an idea because I think, I think what, Leaks are important, not just because of the kind of like gossip in tittle tattle, but because they're how you kind of get a sense of where the power lies in Westminster. So is it, you know, a kind of cabinet government where actually it really is that and, you know, the different departments have a lot of the same policy? Is it a case where it's actually it is just number 10 or just number 10 in the Treasury yeah. and the cabinet ministers just have to smile and be nodding dogs? And we kind of don't know. Like We, I, we I don't mean, really know. So so again, so I'm, I'm not sure. I, th I think I could probably convincingly make you a case for both scenarios here that you know, there is unity <laughs> and disunity, but we'd be you know, none the wiser. I, I mean, you know, the ideal situation is to get that feel from actually government announcing policy and then answering questions and defending Government it. announcing um, policies. What are you, you know, like? and, and leaks had filled the gap for that not really happening. And now we're not getting either. It's, <laughs> so you know, it's just, a, just a completely baffling silence coming from Whitehall it's, while yeah. the country burns. It, that, that's, yeah, again, quite literally what I wrote in my column last week. Because I think, you know, it kind of looks like that kind of meme format of like, one, stop the leaks. Two, question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> Three, success. And it's like, no, no, there's got to be a two, though. There's got to be a two. Like, you can't, like, that's not the be all end all. <laughs> Tom, after further allegations of bullying came out against him, Dominic Rab, you remember him? <laughs> Hasn't made a media appearance for at least six weeks. Labour claim is nearly three months. Why is Sunak holding on to such an obvious liability? Well, I mean, we know that Rishi Sunak had to use his cabinet picks to stick his party like back together again, right, like a drop vase. So he's holding on to all sorts of dross. Um, I mean, why did he reappoint Svela Braverman, knowing that he would spend his first week as prime minister having to have his home secretary face questions about why she was sacked the week before, yet had been reappointed before those questions even got around to being asked of her? And he made, he made himself look totally ridiculous. But we, he did it because he, has to do a, he did a bargain with her. And the, those bargains haven't gone away. Like the glue has not held. The vase is not, is not wholly mended. It's still stuck together. And also, I think it's just kind of who he is, right? He, he's never happier than when he's in front of a spreadsheet doing what he thinks matters. And everything is so bad. And they have screwed everything up so badly for so long. Not all of it his fault. He hasn't been prime minister for very long that it is effectively impossible for anyone in, in his government to do a media hit that will go well for them. So he kind of can't be asked with it. I mean, he, they've already said that they're not going to have a minister on the media round every day. And obviously journalists should be appalled, and we are appalled. But I'm not convinced it's necessarily doing them any harm. I mean, during the pandemic, right, and probably at Dominic Cummings' instigation, the government boycotted Good Morning Britain, didn't they? Because they just decided there was such little point in them going on there just to be berated by Piers Morgan over and over and over and over again without being able to get a word in edgeways. And I actually kind of quite admire the government for saying, no, we're not going on that. It's a joke. There's no point. But now they're in a position where they're having to do that to everyone because they cannot possibly score a win because everything is so awful. Mm. Uh, I mean, at, at least we used to get the occasional photo of them pretending to work. That was nice. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite reassuring. Mark Harper and Steve Barclay. Let, let's group those two stars together. <laughs> um, the, the Transport and Health Secretaries, they, they've been more active in the media because of all their strikes. But again, 
set against the very charismatic union leaders like Pat Cullen and Mick Lynch, they just seem, you know, you forget they were even on the program the moment they're off the program. Why has Sunak's administration really struggled to find big media performers? I, I don't get that. You know, I mean, you can hate Michael Gove for all sorts of reasons, but there's no doubt that, he, you know, he used to go on to the media round and make an impact. He was good at it. There's many answers. One is that the Tory party has just been in civil war for the entirety of the last seven years, and a lot of people have been killed in that civil war. Sunak has inherited a parliamentary party that was deliberately purged by Boris Johnson and, and anybody who wasn't prepared to say that his Brexit deal, which was bullshit, wasn't a good deal, then did not get to stand again at 20, in the 2019 election. So many people were burned through that. He mm. has, he's not, not got a great uh, buffet menu to pick from, if you like. I mean, some of them aren't terrible. James Cleverly is actually pretty good. Again, um, quite rarely but, on. But yeah, but in the main, most politicians can only do an OK job on the media so long as they have an okay position to uphold. And that is just so rarely the case these days mm. because every single public service is in disarray. So what, what are they meant to do? What, they just have to go on there, sit there and take their beatings. And maybe it's better if Steve, if you forget Steve Barclay was ever on there. Maybe that counts <laughs> as a win. Anoush? Yeah, I do agree with Tom, actually. I don't think, I mean, obviously everything is doing them harm at the moment, but I don't think the strategy is necessarily a bad one from their perspective, even though it's awful for us as journalists who no. are trying to hold them accountable. Because Rishi Sunak is so much more popular than his party. So he is their asset in a way. So if in the public's mind, the pinnacle or the head of the Conservative Party, who of course is the Prime Minister anyway, is Rishi Sunak not sullied by ministers who get the line wrong or turn out to sound like a gibbering mess, you know, in the face of Mick Lynch tearing them apart mm. on panel shows or political programmes. You know, that, I think that's for the better. So that might be why they're sort of trying to paint it as his party. And I imagine come election time, well, local election time, it will be his face on a lot of leaflets and the Conservative Party logo very small mm. um, because he is actually more popular than the party's brand. So very quickly, I would like to say two words and those two words are Theresa May because that is exactly <laughs> what she did and she ran in 2017 a presidential campaign yes. we all remember and we also remember how that went and I think that Rishi shares some actually of the problems Theresa May has of actually... A surprising you know, amount, actually. I know, no, not very I, I good at quite a lot of the basic stuff actually politicians should be good at. So no, I completely agree with your point, but also I'm a bit like, lads, does that not remind you of anything? Yeah. <laughs> do, yes, do you not that, get that a, a, a light bit of deja vu here? <laughs> That's a good and, point, and also, I think the situation is quite different. I think there might have been a different expectation by people, by audiences, to see ministers explain what they're doing about what's going on three years ago, as opposed to today, you know, where you can't catch a train or... Yeah, it's true. You know, but remember that they're often having to defend things that they don't actually believe in. So there was a story in The Observer over the weekend which suggested that Steve Barclay is actually, you know, bashing up against the Treasury and Number 10 in terms of paying nurses properly and ambulance workers and other NHS staff that are going on strike. So, you know, that, again, adds a, another difficulty to putting your ministers up all the time because they don't necessarily want to defend these mm, lines. Mm. They're saying different things behind the scenes. And like Tom said, you know, this cabinet was cobbled together to be a unity cabinet, bringing in people who had supported Liz Truss and Boris Johnson. So there are, there are a lot of personalities who disagree with each other. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think that if I were in his position and I was sort of filling in my team sheet, one of the considerations would be, right, so who are my media people who are going to do the daily media rounds? And I, I just don't see them on that list at the moment. Suela Braverman, again, pretty invisible recently. I mean, it's happy to leak policy, but not to defend it. Reportedly scrapping pledges made in the wake of the Windrush scandal because, and I quote, Windrush was a long time ago, and anyway, it's fixed now. Is it smart to do this? I know you say there's some merit to it as a strategy, but it seems to me that one of the big advantages of government over opposition is that they can get unlimited airtime and, and, and set the narrative. Why are the Tories not using this structural advantage? Yeah, I think it, I mean, you're right. You know, they can make the weather. They can announce policies on a, you know, on a Sunday and the Sundays. And then that will be what everyone talks about on Monday, even though it's not a policy that's ever destined particularly to happen, as we've seen a lot of right lately. So, yes, I mean, it is squandering an opportunity. But what they are is they're a 
government trying to look like they're responding to crisis. Their word is, I think you must have noticed this, is reasonable, being reasonable. So everything they're trying to do is through compromise and through trying to look like they're doing, having a measured response to things that are going wrong. Um, and so I think if they have ministers out like Suella Braverman, who is, you know, a very confrontational kind of political operator, then it, it goes against the grain of, of the narrative of this government, which is, you know, I'm a CEO who's come in to try and manage this company through a crisis. And, you know, I'm not particularly ideological, whereas people like Braverman come across as mm. quite extreme. What's interesting is that what I've noticed in my work on social media for various campaigning organizations is that focus has shifted to parliament. A lot of people are becoming a lot more interested in clips of what's being debated in parliament and sort of getting it straight from there, which is not playing great for the government. <laughs> Tom, Boris Johnson, we have to mention the big unkempt albatross hanging around Sunak's <laughs> neck continues to be a perpetual source of gossip. He's in many ways more visible than most in the cabinet still. The latest rumour was that he won't challenge Sunak, provided he gets a safe seat at the next election. Can Sunak do anything to turn down his volume, or will he continue to be a problem and a sort of noise in the background until the election and beyond? Well, beyond is a very different question from until. I think everything's going to change the moment, <laughs> moment, the moment that uh, particular... But moment shifts. But um, I, I don't think Johnson is going anywhere. I don't think he feels like he's done in politics and the Conservative Party is enthralled to him. So he will carry on doing his thing. I mean, he's announced this afternoon that he's got his memoirs coming out. I mean, I imagine they will be entirely self-serving. There will be political in nature. Think? In, the, in, <laughs> it, well, in, the, in the sense that a, a, prime, a prime minister's memoirs are always self-serving. But generally speaking, I mean, I can't think of an exception to this rule they're done when the author is kind of done with frontline politics. And I don't think Boris Johnson is, yet his memoirs are coming out anyway. They won't be self-serving in the sense that they'll be seeking <laughs> to rewrite the historical record. They'll be trying to make the political weather, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And that will be an interesting read. I mean, he will be able to say for the next couple of years, when things get harder and harder, worse and worse, probably, that his party turned on him over a birthday cake and look where it's got them. Now, I don't think that is true. They turned on him because the public had correctly, because they calculated that the public no longer trusted him and therefore he was a liability not an asset but he still has his fan base in the Tory party he has his betrayal narrative and if he wants to have another go then all it takes is for the Conservative Party to let him have another go and they are uniquely enthralled to his extremely limited charms so really don't rule anything out and soon, soon there's not really much Rishi Sunak can do about it especially as he's had his moment he he he, he offed him didn't he and Boris Johnson simply wants to off him back and mm. um I wouldn't necessarily want to be in Rishi Sunak's position. Oh, God. Marie Sunak, let's let's finish on him. He was meant to be a media star, right? Mm. Um, you know, the little we'd seen of him from the Treasury, he was, like, terrific and slick and modern and professional. And now he just seems robotic and stilted and superior in every appearance. He's... His first political broadcast a few days ago, I don't know if you saw it, it, yep. it would have been better read by Alexa. <laughs> um, has his confidence collapsed or was he always a bit shit, but we got him in such small doses that we didn't notice? Well, isn't it more that I think basically any politician, like you could, you know, if Andrew Bridgen had somehow been Chancellor during the pandemic, if you're like, OK, Andrew, can you go to the camera and say, hello, everyone, we are giving you free money and also, you know, restaurants will be cheaper. Yeah. I feel like people would have gone, I like the look of that Bridgen fella. Um, yeah, and, I can work know. that. <laughs> so so I, I think it's mostly that. And and again, what I, what I find frustrating is that, and I'm really not trying to paint myself as some sort of like political genius, but it was really obvious, I think, to anyone who was looking at the time that, again, Sunak was very popular. A, because, again, he was giving money to people for free. And B, because the person he was next to was Boris Johnson. Like, you know, I would seem very professional next to Boris Johnson, and that is not a compliment on either of us. Um, so, so I think that, you know, obviously removed from those two things, um, he just crumbles. I think um, you're being a bit harsh on yourself. <laughs> uh, Anish, very quick question just to end. Is this Sunak hogging the, the limelight primarily, or is it ministers that refuse to go out? to bat? What, where do you think the balance is? Does he want to brand the party with his personality and sort of lead a, a presidential campaign? Or is it just that ministers know 
they're going to lose the next election and they want to get out of the blast radius? It's a good question. I don't I don't actually know the answer to that, but they did make that decision early on, didn't they, that they weren't going to put a minister on every media round and they have stepped back from those programmes. And we do see more sort of speeches and party political broadcast from him as a man than we see a sort of cabinet working collectively. I think that will be more a sort of political calculation that Rishi Sunak is relatively popular compared to his party, mm. like I said earlier on the podcast. So I think, you know, I think that will be, I think it would just be a sort of cynical calculation. This is this is the best we've got. We've got to just sort of plug this image more than <laughs> more than sort of ministers in a flap about every single crisis that is in their intro. Next up, leading lights in the Leave movement have often reveled in other countries' issues with AU, seeing the UK as the revolutionary vanguard, the first domino that would eventually topple the whole row. Frexit, Italeve, Swedivorce, Polskidaddle, screeching headlands at the Express have been telling us the demise of the bloc is imminent for well over a decade. Reality, however, is proving Brexit's political predictions about as accurate as their economic ones. According to new polling by Ipsos, support for leaving the EU has fallen by 13% in Finland, to half what it was, and 9% in both Portugal and Italy. In fact, in all countries surveyed, people said they had a more positive view of the EU since Britain voted to leave it. Maybe it's just a nicer club without us in it. <laughs> let's not uh, let's not go down that let's road. Let's not dwell here. <laughs> Tom, is this the first and only measurable Brexit benefit, in fact, mm-hmm. as a cautionary tale to anyone else listening to the siren singing from the rocks? Yeah, well, it's not a Brexit benefit for us, is it? But um, I mean, I remember in one of the many documentaries about Brexit, there was an interview, I think Jean-Claude Juncker talked about a chat he had with David Cameron in which... Um, Cameron told him, you know, don't worry, I'll get, I'm going to get 65%. And Jean-Claude Juncker says that he said back to David Cameron, I wouldn't even get 65% in Luxembourg. Um, <laughs> and that was probably true at the time, but I suspect it's not true now because of our unique generosity, if you like, in, um, in um, going over the cliff uh, on their behalf. They're, 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 for the many, many millions of people, tens of millions of people all around Europe who were and are a bit disillusioned by the EU, who sort of think maybe it's just not the right way to, in effect, uh, I don't use this word lightly, but in effect to run more than two dozen countries. Well, we've given them a very long, very clear demonstration of life in the fire as opposed to merely in the frying pan. Mm. Um, So it's clearly a, a Brexit benefit for others, yes. But I also think somewhat bizarrely, it's been a great help for kind of, in a way, keeping the union together, which was not what was anticipated. How, what, what do I mean by this? I mean, like Nicola Sturgeon obviously wants there to be a second referendum. She doesn't really want to have to commit to a plan on how independence would work. How would the currency work? How would the border work? Now, they got away with that in 2014, just keeping that stuff very, very wishy-washy. But Brexit's come along and it's made it very, very clear that you really do have to address that stuff. Otherwise, you have chaos, like the chaos that they've seen. So mm. I think that lots of Scottish waverers and haverers will be like, oh, my God, there's no way we're doing independence. Have you seen the state of Brexit? So that is arguably a Brexit benefit, too, and, a, and an unexpected one. OK, to step in on behalf of the Scottish nationalists, I think, because I had to look at the white paper that the Scottish government had to submit before the, the Scottish independence referendum. I mean, it's a it's a sizable and quite detailed document. I mean, it, it makes the plan that Brexiters had, you know, with a sort of four tick points look like a back of a fag packet job. It's really quite detailed compared to that. You had a sense of what Scotland post-independence would be aiming for, what sort of country, what what sort of relationship with the world around it. But I do I do not think your average Scottish person before 2014 or in 2015 would have really thought about, or oh, hang on, if we leave the UK and rejoin the EU, then we've got this whole problem on our border, which is kind of the same as the problem with the Irish border. And that is a completely unsolvable, chaotic mess. So the the mess of Brexit has, in some bizarre way, 
had benefits for the union, I would argue. Yes, no, I think you're right on that. But also, at the same time, it eliminates the various problems that they have on the border with the EU now. So, so it, it, it creates a benefit as well to leaving. Mathieu Gallat uh, from Ipsos, who did the research, says the change in attitude is partly down to the radical right softening on the subject of leaving the EU. I don't think that's unrelated, by the way. Has Brexit made leaving the EU a sort of vote loser now in, in people's eyes? Yeah, well, I mean, I, know, I, know, I don't think it was ever that much of a vote winner. I mean, obviously, I remember the 24th of June um, 2016 and seeing Marine Le Pen changing all the backgrounds on her social media pages to little Union Jackson, <laughs> thinking sort of how pathetic that is. But I think um, people who were inclined to vote for her or, or, or her like-minded people in other parts of Europe can now sort of see that the it was kind of a paroxysm of spitfire nationalism, if you like, and that little bit of pleasure is not worth the pain. I mean, I think George Orwell said something along the lines, I don't have the exact words, but something along the lines of nationalism is a horse that dies the moment it crosses the finish line, right? And you, you, can, you can ride it and you can get excited <laughs> by it, but the second you've won, oh my God, the, your legs cave in from underneath mm. you and you've got no way of getting to your next destination. I like that. And obviously all around Europe and the world, they've been able to see the British horse die on its ass. So it's not surprising that nobody is telling you to lump your money on it, yeah. on it anymore. I, I would argue before crossing the finish line. Um, <laughs> Anoush, support for remaining in the EU in some countries is just astronomical. In Spain, for instance, it is 95.3%. Where does such near unanimous support come from? What did they do to sell the European project that we didn't? What, what, why? What's going on? Wasn't that Spain was really quite poor before joining the EU in the way that perhaps Britain wasn't? I, I may be talking out of my ass here, but that would be my guess anyway. So that was not even my question. But That's what on. I was going to say. So yeah. there are countries which, you know, I mean, you, the EU is such a diverse body of countries that there are some some countries where it is much more obvious the benefit financially from being a member of the bloc. So in somewhere like Spain, where there are a lot of very poor areas and poor employment rates, then perhaps it's more obvious to them than it was in, say, Cornwall or the other places that used to get the big EU grants in the UK, that they were benefiting from the money that you'd get. So mm. I think I would assume that that would be part of it. But then also, <laughs> yeah, you know... It I, is... I would argue that it's more a difference in perception, because if you look at if you look at the economic data for the UK in the 70s... Yes. Yes. Uh, mm. <laughs> And the late sixties, then maybe we we are a lot closer to where Spain was when they joined than we we like to think. Yes, and we're a lot less rich than we like to think as well. You know, we often say, and you know, this as a sort of journalist for a centre left magazine, we're often saying this: we're the fifth richest economy yeah, yeah. in the world. How come it's like this? But actually, we're actually quite a poor country with some very rich people living in it, which is borrowed from a piece that was recently out in the Financial Times, which was looking at the sort of economic uh, outlook for the UK compared with some comparable countries. So actually, you're right, you know, it doesn't necessarily follow that we're some kind of wealthy outlier who could have gone it alone. But I do think, you know, it will be an effect of watching what's happened in the UK. And because the UK was nevertheless, despite all of its problems that we've been listing, was seen on the world stage as somewhere that had enviable public services, that had stable government, that had a voting system that didn't deliver unstable coalitions. And all of that has gone out of the window. And it's something that I'm asked a lot about if I go on media for, you know, foreign media. So I was on a Canadian show fairly recently and they were just asking me about this, you know, question after question. Whereas if I go on a political show beyond this bunker um, in the UK, then, you know, it's 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 rarely it's rarely the, the biggest thing that yeah, is yeah. asked about. But actually, this is all that people think about Britain when you speak to people who are sort of following politics abroad. And they will just be completely confused about what, why this has happened and the, and the impact of as, it. So, as are we. Yeah. As are we. Um, there, there's also the war in Ukraine. I, I, you know, it's naturally made countries sort of concentrate on the importance of European unity, on who their allies are, who their partners are, and how their economies work. What is your instinct of how things will unfold once that war is over? Will Europe be left stronger, more, more cohesive, or will we just return to in squabbling? It's a really good question, and you'd you'd hope that there would be some kind of 
strengthening of unity after going through something like this and showing a united front, which, to be fair, on the whole has happened. But I imagine that the economic fallout, I know that energy prices will come down and are coming down and uh, inflation is due to to get lower as well later this year in the UK. I still think that the impact of all of this, you know, the political instability that it's caused here, for example, will mean that most leaders of European countries will be concentrating on the domestic fallout from this war. And that makes countries very selfish and uh, introspective. And it means that it's less likely that you will have that coordination on the world stage that you'd hope to see. Mm. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe... Maybe it's something that will force the the European Union to think structurally that we have to make this a good deal for everyone in it. Otherwise, they have no incentive to be in it. Yes, you'd hope that that yeah. would be the response because it logically and financially <laughs> would make sense. But actually, you always see It that doesn't happen. always yeah. happen. I know, I know, yes. Marie, um, countries like France, I, I don't, you know, I come to you again. As you know, a, I, as I will be speaking on behalf of French correspondent. Yeah. Um, They have opted for a sort of stay in and reform from the inside narrative. That was David Cameron's initial plan. did not go well. Is the world in which the EU actually changes in a way that satisfies Eurosceptics by maybe providing a two-gear system that's been talked about for a long time? Basically, I don't really know, but I don't think so, because I think that, you know, if, if you'd asked me that question on the 24th of June 2016, my response probably would have been different. But now I think that the public has actually, you know, been so polarized on this that actually, even though, and I know obviously the polls are moving a bit to an extent, but I still think that's a minority of people. And so I think that actually the people who, you know, now want to remain, just want to rejoin rather, just want to rejoin. And the people who still now would vote leave tomorrow if they had to do it again, I'm not convinced there's anything you can really do about them. But then the probably slightly nerdier point as well is that What, you know, what kind of two gears would you offer? Because again, I think, you know, Britain would only really gain from rejoining the European Union, you know, if it rejoins the single market and the customs union. And it's probably, you know, politically, I don't see how that's going to happen. So I think even if there is a sort of, you know, lesser thing, which I'm not sure, you know, will ever exist, I'm still not sure it would really kind of turn Britain's chances around. Mm. Croatia recently joined a year in the Schengen zone. The rest of former Yugoslavia, who are not already members, Albania, they're all candidates to join, as is, of course, Ukraine. Would the EU bring in countries that were once sort of torn apart by nationalism into the fold, send a message to its more populist members that another future is possible? Or or would it just strengthen the sort of obstructionist axis of Eastern bloc countries? Basically, Is enlargement on the whole a good thing for the union that strengthens it? Or is there a, a danger that the sort of founding members might find themselves outnumbered at some point? Hmm. I don't. So I, I, I think the enlargement of the EU is an issue I cannot quite manage to have a, a, a sort of solid opinion on because I can sort of see all sides. Where on, you know, on the one hand, a kind of more, I suppose, like philosophical, philosophical way, it is obviously good. You know, if any countries like who are geographically kind of like nearby want to join, I think that's a really good idea, and especially countries that could benefit massively from becoming members of the European Union. But then it is true that on the practical side, you know, even at the moment, even when there are even slightly fewer countries. You know, the, the the amount of time it takes to get anything done and the number of issues on which, you know, Brussels is still completely stuck and not quite doing anything or, you know, taking so much time to eventually agree on something that is a much watered down version of what they wanted originally, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it's, it's quite hard to, you know, think of new countries joining and think that actually that's not going to get worse than mm. it already is. So I'm not, I'm not really sure. But then also, so I wonder, my, my slightly cowardly answer, I guess, would be because I think that the main countries that are kind of problematic at the moment are Poland and Hungary. So, I mean, I think Hungary, I'm not really seeing a world in which things get better anytime soon, to be honest. But, you know, it's a case of also, you know, Poland, does something change there politically in the meantime? Because they're not, you know, all those countries are not going to be joining tomorrow. They're still... I think, quite a long way for most of them to go. So in the meantime, I think, for me, the again, the slightly cowardly way out answer would be what happens politically in Poland and Hungary, because if they're still just like, we're going to be very annoying and we have new friends here joining us, then obviously that could be a problem. Yeah, But yeah. if things get better there, then there may not be a kind of pre-existing block to be joined, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, uh, Tom, Sadiq Khan clearly placed the blame at Brexit's door in a speech to city executives last week for the weakness of the economy. Plenty of us agree with him, but Keir Starmer is still very cautious. Do you think the Labour position will begin to move? Are we seeing uh, the start of a sort of dragging of the Overton window, as it were, a little bit in a different direction? I mean, I don't think the Labour position will begin to move if they can help it. No, uh, I'm afraid. Um, I mean, and certainly not before they get into government, which which I think they will do. I mean, I don't think the, um, if you like, electoral demographics of this has changed at all in seven years. I think 66% of Labour voters voted Remain, but 33% voted Leave. And if those 33% go off and vote for someone else, then Labour are screwed, whereas the 66% get taken slightly more for granted. And it's not just because they're all going to run off and join the Lib Dems because they haven't done that. But it's because most of those 66 percent do accept that there was a referendum and they didn't win it. I mean, there's there's obviously, I think fundamentally, it's it's infuriating to it's infuriating to be thought of as in the bag. And yet in the bag are we, (laughs) 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 which is just really annoying. It is annoying, but I mean, I, I am obviously a Remainer, but but it is annoying. But we do have to accept that we didn't win that referendum, and I think it's too early to have another one. The referendum was a complete disgrace. It was fought in an awful fashion, but nevertheless, what happened happened. And I think fundamentally, sadly, the less Keir Starmer can talk about Brexit, the better. I mean, he's been doing this thing. I mean, I went to his New Year's speech a couple of weeks ago, and it was a very, very, very good speech indeed. It was excellent. It's one of the best speeches I've heard in the last seven and a half years. But the bit on Brexit, I didn't think was very good because he's been doing this thing that lots of Remainers do, which is where they say, this is what the Brexit vote was really about. And he's honed in on that take back control message, hasn't he? He said he's going to do a take back control bill, which is going to be the label he attaches to his devolution bill. And he says that actually people voted Brexit because of house prices and economic decline and insecure work and yada, yada, yada. And if you come out with that stuff, then you really are telling 16 million people that voted for Brexit that they're stupid, that they voted for reasons, they voted for Brexit for reasons that are not going to be made better by Brexit. And I don't actually think that that's true. I think people voted for Brexit for nationalistic nationalistic reasons, right? A, because of uncontrolled immigration, as they perceive it, and they're not really uh, afraid, there aren't enough politicians around to tell them that what we need is more immigration. They pander to the worst instincts on that front. But also there's a big, 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 big chunk of B, which is that a lot of people people who voted for Brexit think that the EU is this um, undemocratic project that's trying to turn the countries of Europe into one big country with no borders, with one currency, one central bank, one defence policy, one agricultural policy. And I kind of think that's true. I think that kind of is a pretty fair assessment of what the European Union is trying to do. I also just happen to think that it's a bloody brilliant idea. Yeah. But we, we're not capable in this country of, like, take defence, right? We're not capable in this country of having a debate which says, well, actually, what are our defence needs? America has not necessarily got our back because its democracy is failing. Our, our protagonists, you like, are far more likely to be China and Russia. So the European, the, the European Union does arguably need to have one defence policy. Look at, the U, look at the US armed forces, right? They've got two types of tank, three types of yeah. battleships, and so on and so forth, whereas the European equivalent... They've got 10,000 different types of machinery, which can't all operate. Which yes, can't and, and we're seeing how well. important that is in the Ukraine yeah. context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, but, so if, you, if, you, if the Ukraine war had happened the year before the Brexit referendum, you could have maybe talked about this stuff in a more grown-up way. But actually, we still have to have this debate as if the point of the British Armed Forces is to defend itself from potential attack from France or Germany, which is never, <laughs> ever, ever, ever going to happen, is it? Fucking but I Putin. don't think that the people who... <laughs> he even got the timing <laughs> wrong. <laughs> but I, I, don't, I don't think the people who... There are, there are too many people who, vote, who are inclined to vote Labour who will not ever be prepared to have their minds changed about, being, about the idea that being part of a big political project that is the European Union, not just an economic project, is a good idea. Mm. Uh, that would take a long while to change. But in the next couple of years, I don't think there's much political mileage for Labour to be made by um, sort of going all Remainery again. Anoush, reports suggest that movement on the protocol is imminent. I've actually heard that from context of my own Brussels. Last week, Starmer was in Belfast offering effectively, explicitly political cover to Sunak on Northern Ireland. He said, if there is a deal to be done, do it. Can this be solved with cross-party support, do you think? 
not cross-party in terms of Labour and Tory, I don't think, and not just for political reasons on the on the Conservatives' part, because really the audience that you need to please are the DUP and the Unionists in Northern Ireland. So, yeah. well, what well, well, will please the DUP? Yes, exactly. So that's <laughs> more, and, and they both, you know, Keir Starmer, Rishi Sunak, they both know that's the trickier question. It's good politics from Starmer because he's saying let's make his whole thing about Brexit. You know, finally, he has actually started talking about Brexit and his line on it is make Brexit work. So he's saying, you know, if if you're close to a deal and you want to try and get it done and you want to get it through Parliament and you want to get sort of political consensus on it, we're there to help you. It's clever politics because as soon as, you know, the government is relying on opposition votes, then it's sort of lost, especially in terms of its own backbenchers and the ERG. But, you know, uh, it it makes him look like he is there to cooperate on Brexit rather than to block it, which was often the perception and actually often the reality of what Labour were doing. They were blocking things. You know, you remember all of those never-ending votes on Brexit. Yeah, and that's something that did piss the public off quite a lot, which is why Get Brexit Done was such a perfect slogan. So it's clever from Starmer, but it's not really the issue, is it? The issue is you have to come up with a deal that the DUP will accept, and then, you know, you can take some steps towards having an executive again at Stormont, which, you know, again, feels quite far off, even though there is some talk of developments on the protocol. Mm. Well, Theresa May may have had the right idea in this, just throw a bunch of money at them. Um, <laughs> Marie, meanwhile, more Tory backbenchers are reported to be ready to join a rebellion over the retained EU law bill. Another little sort of firefront in this. Pretty much everyone except a small handful of headbangers, including prominent Brexiters, are saying this would be a disaster if it goes ahead, just sunsetting every bit of regulation in, in on the same date. Sunak is not shy of a U-turn, so why is he pushing this through? It 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 just it doesn't seem like his project. It I don't know, but I feel like even so actually I I've always found Sunak's relationship with Brexit to be quite interesting because I think it, it is correct to say that because you know politics is ultimately about vibes. And Sunak has the vibe by any means of a Remainer. And yet, you know, what was not just someone who voted for Brexit, but he was actually a Brexiteer, you know, from quite early on. So so yes, I I I don't really know. I mean, you know, will he basically I didn't really want to commit to an answer because I think that the chances of him falling, Committing to an answer yeah, are no, slim. That falling <laughs> are, are just so big because that's what I think that that's really the one thing he's got in common with Boris of that amazing, you know, thing of the government is that of course, you know, we will not be folding on this. Well, everyone that literally everyone in the country is like, obviously you will have to fall. They're like, no, we're not. No, we're not. And then, you know, days pass, occasionally weeks pass. And then they're like, well, we have no choice but to fold on this. It has come as a surprise and a shock to us. We're listening. Um, and, but every, We're no, listening. And, and, and that is, I mean, frustratingly, I wrote a feature on exactly this about the decision-making process in number 10 about Boris in 2019. And I swear to God that, you know, it's exactly it's happening again. So, I, yeah, I, I refuse to answer this question on the grounds that You've answered it so many times before. Yeah. No, I accept that fully. Now, Greta Thunberg has shown the world that sometimes even an environmental activist is allowed to burn trash. The self-describing misogynist influencer Andrew Tate is languishing in Romanian jail after his own Pizzagate, proving there are risks to fiddling with 33 car keys when trying to evade the police. A man who prided himself on his Bugattis and his women now finds himself with neither. Tate used the trappings of his wealth to assemble an army of aspiring young hustlers who hung on his every word and helped him grow his empire of grift. He may be in custody, but his noxious ideas still continue to spread like chauvinist mustard gas. Anoush, Tate's brand of sort of overcompensatory masculinity feels weirdly antiquated, all cigars and fancy cars and women in bikinis. Even hypermasculine celebs like Dwayne Johnson, let's say, project something more complex nowadays. 
even if you contractually can't lose a fight on screen. Why has such a one-dimensional and obviously one-dimensional portrayal become so popular? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's completely, it feels, it doesn't even feel offensive. It almost just feels passe. It's like from a different era, isn't it? So, I mean, it is, you know, a lot of the stuff is really horrible about sort of how men should own their wives and things, but it's, it's, it's bizarrely backward. And I think the reason why it's sort of caught hold in terms of, Sort of certain young men online is because, well, I mean, from speaking to Richard Reeves, an academic who uh, has written a book called Of Men and Boys, which is about how there isn't sort of really much out there for boys growing up and they're falling behind in terms of not only academia, but, you know, there's studies that show that men have fewer friends than women. So not just fewer qualifications, but fewer friends falling behind in all sorts of areas. And the data that he shows in his book is actually really compelling. And what he was saying was there's just no sort of while women have this have because of the feminist advances have had this whole narrative of you know you can work in these jobs that weren't you know historically populated by women like stem you know yeah yeah men don't have the equivalent so he talks about the heel subjects health education administration and literacy for example there's not many male primary school teachers for example so there's not th- that equivalent narrative saying now that you know gender norms are changing and gender roles are changing Here's the here's the other path for men. So yeah. boys go seeking out something that sort of makes sense for them about their masculinity that isn't just talking about how masculinity is toxic and the patriarchy is sort of holding everyone down. And that, for some reason, is the conclusion that certain people like Andrew Tate have decided that they want to exploit. But there isn't necessarily that much out there that gives a different, more healthy view of what masculinity is in this in this feminist age now. Mm. Fans of Tate have explained away his criminal charges, claiming he's a victim of the Matrix, a term he uses to refer to systems that are created, apparently, to keep men down. How do we begin to challenge sort of belief systems that reject any doubt as a conspiracy? You know, they pre-warn their followers that be careful because they're going to tell you this and that, but it's a lie. Yeah, this is the new dangerous thing, I think. It's it's like the sort of what happened with the US election, for example. As soon as someone does get persecuted for something that they've done wrong, they can sow seeds of doubt in their followers' minds of the legitimacy of the authorities who are ruling that they've done something wrong. Or or at least, you know, I know that he's 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 been accused, but he hasn't been convicted. But I think that's that's part of the real danger of sort of the modern problem with this is is not just when a wrong and is proved to be a wrong and people say, oh, right, OK, that's a bit of a letdown. I'll just move on to the next thing. They get hooked on the idea that actually it's a huge injustice and there are these conspiratorial forces that are against him and, and forcing this to happen, which pushes people, ironically, into more and more extreme places online because of that. Um, so it's quite clever. And obviously, they, they know what they're doing when they're using this kind of language of red pilling and ma- the matrix. Tom, a lot of parents have opened up about their shock at sort of finding out Tate. They'd never heard of him, but their young, you know, teenage sons had heard of him. He's a popular figure with boys and young men. How much is this down to the unavailability of male role models sort of closer to hand because we're smaller family units now yeah I'll just just can i quickly come back to what anoush was saying which is um about um you know conspiracy theories theorism if you like and n- nothing has really changed on that front in terms of the epistemology of it i mean I, I remember being really a lot younger than i am now and reading about how Muhammad al-Fayed had become convinced that um, his son had been killed by the security services. And anybody who tried to tell him that he hadn't, he just told them, well, you must work for the security services as well then. <laughs> and and there's, no, there's no way of puncturing that belief system. Yeah. And it's exactly the same one as Anoush was just describing. Yeah. It's, it's not new, and there, but there's no, like, there's no sort of hard and fast or, or clever way to get around it, other than to, if you know someone like that, to sit them down and do the, I don't like this phrase, but do the hard yards with them, painfully explain to them that, no, there is no conspiracy, try and see the light, but it's not, it's not a very easy thing to do once they're so convinced and once there's such a simple ideological or, or intellectual argumentative defence mechanism against it, which is that anybody trying to correct you is clearly... Yeah. In on it, yeah, yeah, and you, you, there's no there's no shortcut around that stuff. But but to to the, the question that you asked me, I mean, 
I mean, can I can I admit that before he got burned by Greta Thunberg, I had genuinely never heard of Andrew Tate. Like I had no idea who he was, probably because I'm living in a completely different. Well, that's kind of the well. point, though. You're not his but, target demographic. That's that, that's what yeah. I mean. But I, I am not surprised that he is a popular figure with young boys and very young men because he is an immensely childish person. I mean, a, a lot a lot of teenage boys, and for a short while, I would have included myself in that back in the day are just very, very, very right-wing. Like, like they're extremely, extremely Thatcherite. They, they discover politics, they start interacting with the world and how it's run. And th their idea of fairness and social justice is that you should just be allowed to make as much money as you want, spend it on whatever you want, and anyone who tries to stop you is just being completely unfair. And then once you get a little bit, more, a little bit older and a little bit cleverer, you realise that you were an idiot because the world is much more complicated than that. And if you don't make it to that stage, by the way, generally what you do is go and join the Tory party. Mm. But that, that, that sort of, that, that, the, if, if he appeal, if they, they, I'm not surprised there's a market out there for Andrew Tate of young men who are really right wing, who want to make as much money as they possibly can and treat everybody else like shit. But mm. generally speaking, those young men will grow out of it. And then of course, they'll just be replaced by other young men coming in from a younger age. But I don't think it necessarily speaks to a grand new failing in society. I, I don't. I, I think it's just that young people now enter a, enter a fragmented uh, media landscape, if you like, and they consume what they want rather than in the old days when there was much less choice out there and what you were given to consume, like Harry Enfield's television programme or whatever, was fed to you from the, from the, from the top down rather, rather than from the bottom up and people exploiting it. Um, and I actually think that things were better. But that, I, that I would way, say but... it is almost top down now. Still, even though it feels there is this illusion of choice because there's so much online. But actually, you are being fed the things that you the, the algorithm decides to feed you, and obviously that's from your own interest. But you're not really once you're getting onto more and more extreme clips, you're not really making that choice, are you? You're coming across it because of the way that the business model works. So I think there is a little bit of a difference. You are, but it's so much easier for, for absolutely anybody. Is a, I mean, this stuff is, I'm not saying anything new or original or even interesting, really, but absolutely anybody is a media mogul these days, right? It's so easy to create content, put it online. You don't need to sort of own the, the, the incredibly expensive technology that previously allowed you to address a wide audience. So it's not surprising that someone like Andrew Tate can, hoover, can set up on his own and hoover up all the disaffected youth, whereas previously he wouldn't really have been able to do that. Can I ask the whole panel, very quickly, give me a sort of positive male role model of now that deserves the kind of attention, Tate? Bukayo Saka. Okay. The loveliest boy. No, but so, uh, you know, but I think just the general England team. So I was talking to a friend who works with kids recently and who said that he went to this school and all the little boys, that, who had actually really, really short hair, but still wore hair bands to be like Jack Grealish because they loved him so much. And that <laughs> melted my heart. That melted my heart. Apparently, they looked so stupid. And it was just the same. Oh, that's thing. fabulous. And again, just like boys who like, you know, like, these are just like men who like, like each other. They talk about their feelings. A lot of them actually had great GCSEs and A-levels and they had real job for going into football and stuff. I think that that is, for me, the epitome of, like, the great sort of, like, male yeah. model. How about you, Tom? Well, obviously, I've got the England football team written in front of me. I mean, like, being being really quite good at football, but also campaigning for social justice, free school meals and so on. I mean, who are the best-selling musical artists of the last God knows how long? Ed Sheeran and Stormzy. There's not a lot of toxic masculinity to be found there, is there? But I also would say that you don't we'll necessarily... We'll see. You don't, <laughs> <laughs> you don't necessarily need your male role models to be sort of pushed out in the direction of what we might call the wokerati, just in order to like counterbalance the effects of people yeah, like Andrew yeah. Tate. I mean, almost all successful men are good role models. Dare I say, Rishi Sunak is not a terrible male. It's not a terrible male role model at yeah. all. Uh, how about you? That's Anish? a good answer. I, yeah, I mean, I did. I had so I had Andy Murray. Because he's sort oh. of like a low-key feminist, but he's not, in the words of Tom, sort of like categorized as a sort of worker yeah, artist no, no, like I person. Like that. So like, he loves his mum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then I thought, and, and I had a few footballers as well, but then I thought, actually, Paddington, the bear. 
<laughs> Emotionally vulnerable. Scraping. Please look feel... after this bear. <laughs> he makes his own sandwiches. No woman is making his sandwiches yeah. for him. Uh, and he is a progressive patriot. You know, he has foreign heritage, but he loves Britain. Love it. And he can rock a timeless classic in the Duffel Coat as well, good. which we all want our men to be able to do. Um, I, I would uh, suggest... Um, as we were talking about her just now, Greta Thunberg, because I think part of the part of the beauty of the age we're living in is that uh, actually boys don't have to look at men for their role models and girls don't have to look at women, just women for their role models. They can look at people and and see, look at what that person has accomplished. Maybe that can be my role model. And I think it's slightly skewed to constantly um, demand of boys to find a man yes. that they admire and wish to emulate. Find a great woman that you admire and wish to emulate. Do that. Finally, as we record, it's Blue Monday, the saddest day of the year. It's not really, you know, it's just a marketing thing. How are our panellists beating the blues with their escape routes from politics? Yes, I am currently reading an absolutely charming little novel called Tepper Isn't Going Out by Calvin Trillin. The plot is actually incredibly simple. It's just this middle-aged man in New York who decides to just spend, you know, when he's not at work or sleeping at home, just like stay in his car. So parked in a legal spot. It's always a legal spot, but he's just parked in his car and he reads the paper there. <laughs> and it's basically just like, but like the, at first his neighborhood and then like gradually the whole of New York gets into this weird sort of frenzy about this man who just reads his paper <laughs> in his car for hours at a time. Um, and, and it's just like, and that's literally it. I don't really know what else to say because that's basically the entire book, but it's so charming and sort of like quietly funny. And it's, yeah, and I found it really randomly in a charity shop. And I'm having a ball reading it. So we really recommend it if you want something quite light and fun. Anoush, (laughs) how about you? So I'm going to give a very January answer. Okay. But I've been going to these free outdoor gym classes uh, run by our parks. And they have them on in various councils. And it's something I have been doing for a while, but I've I've neglected it recently. So January has brought me back. But yeah, if you want to do some running around in the pouring rain, it's actually, I mean, it sounds terrible, but it's actually really good because I find the idea of going to a gym gym class like at a gym quite intimidating but this is just you know any old person can rock up and no one's particularly serious about it and it's free and you know using public services that are actually there is quite a novelty okay all right yeah i i, I find the idea of running towards anything other than warmth and cake when it's we do raining. do that afterwards quite. <laughs> how about you tom uh, well, if you want the January one, I bought a second-hand Peloton bike a couple of weeks ago. Because um, my thinking was like, if I spend this disgusting amount of money on an exercise <laughs> bike, then I will hate myself. Like, I will loathe myself so much <laughs> if I don't get on it. That I simply, I just thought it was the correct thing to do. But I was doubly chastened when I went to pick it up because I bought it second-hand from this guy in Cambridge. And I opened the door and standing in front of me was a frankly quite disappointed-looking chubby fellow. And um, it makes me realise that there must be this whole like market out there of, of like <laughs> pelotons being passed around from on the Don doorsteps from sort of disappointed tubby chaps to optimistic tubby chaps. And I know full well that like in six months' time on my doorstep it's going to be this role reversal. <laughs> And I, I'm quite determined for, 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 that, for that not to happen. Tom um, is I'll, 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 date. <laughs> <laughs> and my recommendation will go to White Lotus Season 2, which I oh, just yeah. finished. Uh, no spoilers, I'm not done yet. Just uh, uh, extraordinary and funny and touching and really mysterious and wonderful. And also um, curses to Ian Dunt for making me watch a film on Shudder called Speak No Evil, uh, a sort of Scandinavian Dutch horror film in that is just unspeakably awful and bleak and, and brilliantly <laughs> done, but just scars you deep within your soul so that's the end of the Tuesday edition <laughs> of Oh God What Now here's a theme tune Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop along with a thank you to some of our lovely backers Hello and many thanks from me to Lewis Murhead Lisa Stamm and Nellis Richter 
Joe McPherson, The Faces at the Window, Lynn Pickrell, Adrienne and Barbara Burke. Many thanks for your support from me to Patrick Shannon, Arabella Fasham, Jane Ballantyne, Nicole Curtis, Rosie, Richard Murphy, R.L. and Jens Villamos. And from me, a huge thanks and all the best to Jane Howell, Philip Davy, and Andrea Fox, Matthew Nichols, Emily, Martin Lejeune, Tom, and Sally Campbell-Smith. Thank you for listening. We'll see you at the end of the week for another episode. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Alex Andreu with Marie LeConte and Tom Peck. Audio production was by me, Jay Bailey. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with production from Jack Gerbertson and Kasia Tomasiewicz. Art direction was by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Thank you.